time keeps on leaving and we keep on moving. When do we pass on our wisdom to the youth? My veteran story lost our discussions, fireside chats with the bourbon or two. It's time to hear the story by military veterans. Get yourself ready, it's the Lost Arts Podcast. The Lost Arts with Andrew Cox. Hello, hello my friends and welcome back. Welcome back to that podcast that gives a voice to our veterans. I will tell you, I am extremely excited to get into this podcast. This is the second part of Sergeant Major Retired Bill Oldenburg. And now we're in his staff and CO years and we're going to move forward and he's going to have some great stories, I'm sure, because as staff NCOs, we see some crazy stuff uh, and do some crazy things, too. So I'm excited. Uh, Bill, are you out there, Bill? I sure am, Andrew. How are you doing today, my friend? Oh, I can't complain. Everything is going well. Did you have a good day today? I had a great day today. Christmas went really well with the family and just uh, getting ready for the new year. Awesome. Yes, that's right. Christmas. Uh, we had a, we had Santa come to our house, uh, left me a little bit of coal. Uh, but my girls, they did really good, so they got all, all kinds of goodies. Uh, we did get a picture or two of Santa in our house, which was pretty pretty cool. So uh, my girls really enjoyed that. Oh, very nice. Yeah, we had, uh, you know, all of our kids are grown, and we have nine grandkids. So we were able to celebrate with uh, with most of them um, this past weekend, and then we'll be able to get with the uh, the rest of them this coming up weekend for New Year's. Awesome. That's That's really good. Are you have any big plans for New Year's? Are you going anywhere? Are you just staying there? So we're going over to my uh, my daughter lives up in Andrew, um, over by the Durham. So we're going to go okay. up to her house and uh, spend the night there and uh, celebrate. Uh, we're going to do Jeopardy games and some other things that she found online, and uh, just make uh, make the most of it. Stay off the roads because it's always a uh, kind of dangerous New Year's Eve. Very true. Very true. Wise words from a sergeant major right there. Okay, so um, we were. Back in California, if I'm not mistaken, you were a staff sergeant, uh, had just got back from UDP, and you were getting ready to go on recruiting duty, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so this was a, you know, one of those events where I knew I always, when my career was starting to get played out of my head, I always knew that I wanted to be a sergeant major. Um, but back then, you know, without a successful B-billet, there's no way um, I was ever going to be considered eligible. So uh, at the time, I was a maintenance controller in a 53 uh, Echo Squadron, pretty critical billet. Um, and the Hearst team, which uh, they came around once a year and then they were selecting people to go out on these special duty assignments. And uh, I wanted to go on it, but I knew my CEO wasn't gonna let me go because of uh, the, the critical billet that I had. Well, uh, he agreed to submit a letter um, to the selecting panel to say, hey, if I have to go, I have to go, but please uh, don't consider me. Well, when I went over there and I met up with the master sergeant and the major, um, was basically begging them, um, to accept me. And they don't, they didn't have that very often. Most people were trying to get out of it from what they were saying. And, uh, so the opportunity presented itself and I got signed up to go to recruiter school in December of 1996. That's awesome. And coming from a, uh, I'm assuming that MOS is a little bit smaller. So it is difficult to get out on those recruiting it, or it get really out on is. Those. It really is, especially when you're, uh, you're serving in a critical role within the squadron. Um, and if you're good at it, you know, you're just coming back off of UDP and the squadron was getting ready to go back out again um, in like another 10 months. 
Um, they definitely wanted to make sure they had all their key players. Um, but then when I had a conversation with the CEO that it was, it's important for me for my development. Um, and then when I got the orders, um, he reluctantly, um, agreed and, uh, smiled, shook my hand and, uh, you know, we've stayed friends ever since. <laughs> That's awesome. That's the way to do it right there. All right. So, uh, you now where did you go for, uh, recruiting? Uh, now I know so, you went to school in San Diego, right? There at MCRD. Yeah, so I was stationed up in Tustin. Um, I went to school down in San Diego, down at MCRD. And, uh, I was also one of the fortunate ones to get what we referred to back then as by name requested. Um, right. so I had a great relationship you know, and every time I'd go back home on leave, I'd always go down to the recruiting office and I uh, just kept those relationships open. So when it came time for me to actually get orders, I reached back and was able to get a by name request to go back to my hometown of Poughkeepsie, New York. Oh, that's awesome. So you're back in uh, Poughkeepsie and is that, did I say that right? Yeah, it's Poughkeepsie. So we started out initially, um, they couldn't get me into Poughkeepsie, but it was all RS Albany, New York. Um, right. So I was over in uh, Oneonta, which is about two and a half hours away from Poughkeepsie. Um, so I got out there in uh, December of uh, 96, checked into uh, uh, PCS Oneonta, um, did that for a year and a half. And then uh, they ended up making uh, its own um, uh, RSS. So it became RSS Oneonta. It was a small station me and another PCS up in Cobleskill, um, great recruiter, great friend of mine, Eric Kirchner. Um, he was a uh, tanker, ended up retiring as a Mustang major. major. Nice. And uh, Eric and I were kind of running the world. And then about halfway through my uh, four-year tour, I ended up extending for a year. So I did four years on recruiting duty. Um, I had the opportunity to go down and actually take over Poughkeepsie as an NCOIC when I picked up Gunny. And uh, so then I was able to be literally three miles from my mother's house um, back home and uh, just making opportunities for those that I grew up with. Wow, that's really cool. Now, uh, was your family there? What, like, did you live in Poughkeepsie uh, or did, were you back uh, uh, somewhere else at that point with the family? Not, uh, so what we ended up doing uh, when I was able to do a PCA from Oneonta down to Poughkeepsie, um, and, you know, a lot of times a lot of that heavy lifting fell to my wife because, you know, the recruiting mission never stops you know right. so you're still prospecting doing your thing and so you know we would have like that one weekend to load the truck but my wife was you know spending all the time boxing things up and then unpacking when we got down to poughkeepsie but uh, we were uh, we were back home uh if i told you in the last episode my wife's my high school sweetheart so all of her family was there as well so it really worked out well um for us to be back home um literally back home where we grew up that's awesome. So um, on recruiting duty, what are some things that uh, that you kind of remember that stick out and then some lessons learned from recruiting duty? So the biggest thing that I always remember with uh, as far as lesson learns is your word is your bond. You know, so when it comes to having your conversations with the applicants, the, your, uh, the family members, your educators in the schools, um, you, you have to be straightforward and honest with them. Sometimes answer the hard questions that uh, some people don't want to say because when it comes down to it, people are buying you or, or believing in your word. And uh, that's really what kind of ruled the day uh, with me. I had an opportunity in Poughkeepsie to build relationships with my old high school coach um, who was uh, one of the principals at one of the, uh, the schools. And he was able to introduce me into some of the other principals. So the military at the time wasn't this uh, negative thing. Well, this was, so 96, 97, after Desert Shield, Desert Storm, right. you know, the nation started 
shifting to more of a uh, a positive pro-military kind of mindset. So it definitely was a, a lot more enjoyable being able to go out there and have opportunities to go in and talk to classes and talk to students and set up in the hallways where you weren't always shunned. Um, right. Because you didn't always get welcomed with open arms, but they weren't, you know, locking the doors in front of you. But you, it was your relationships and uh, the way you conducted yourself is what got you back into these schools. Yeah, very, very true. Very true. I know nowadays they're having a hard time with recruiting. Uh, I don't know where we sit as far as making mission or not, but I, I know this is the like one of the first years that the Marine Corps really struggled uh, to actually make mission. So we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, I haven't heard yet. So hopefully it goes yeah, well. When they start talking about, you know, what it takes to get quality, just basically being qualified for the military, um, you know, it's it's a pretty ri- uh, rigid set of uh, requirements. When you think about it, you know, at the macro level, it's, you know, making sure that, you know, you're physically able to, you know, serve, making sure as f- your physical conditioning, you're able to do your part, um, but making sure that your education um, is at the right level to be able to get in a high school diploma or a GED or equivalent. Um, and then uh, the big thing also is uh, your legal involvement or your moral involvement. You know, when you get into uh, into trouble as a kid and you don't think that the consequences you know, are really going to impact you. Um, there were so many young men and women that I knew that uh, were very much wanted to be in the Marine Corps. But when they were 14, 15, 16, you know, did dumb stuff um, and then actually got arrested and got a record and uh, uh, were unqualified to come into the military. And it's even harder nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I don't, I'm glad I never actually got on recruiting duty. I think that is an incredibly tough job. Uh, and I'm glad that you did it and were very successful at it because uh, you were able to recruit guys like me, uh, which was, uh, you know, I came in in 99. So you were finishing up recruiting duty whenever I was just coming in the Marine Corps. That's, uh, you know, it's one of those things, too, where you still make uh, relationships. And uh, so I still have. One of the guys that I actually shipped to recruit training uh, is a CWO4 here at Camp Lejeune, runs the post office, um, Chief Warrant Officer for Banks. And uh, I had another uh, guy that I recruited that ended up retiring as a lieutenant colonel. Um, so after I put him in the uh, the reserves, um, he finished up his degree and then ended up getting commissioned. All total, I want to say there was probably 15 or 20 out of the 96 that I actually recruited um, that, uh, did careers. So at least 20 years. Wow. That's, that's really good odds. Well, yeah, it was a uh, pretty, pretty, uh, significant matter of fact, when I retired in 2016, uh, the commander of troops for my ceremony, uh, was a young lady that I recruited, um, out of upstate New York. Uh, she's a retired first heart. Um, she was, uh, blessed me with the honor of uh, being the commander of troops for my uh, retirement ceremony. That is awesome. Oh man, it's, it's sometimes it's it's really cool to see things come full circle, right? It is awesome. So the uh, one of those jobs, it was again. I did four years because I saw myself being a career recruiter. You know, I'm going to stay out. I was thought I was going to stay out there for the long haul. Um, my wife was uh, very supportive in all the things, but when we had the opportunity to go back to the fleet, um, she said, "I think we should be ready to go back to the fleet." And just like any wise man. Um, if he says, let's go this way, I say, that's the smartest thing. Let's go. <laughs> that's, that's very wise. Yeah. The, the women have a way of, uh, thinking a little bit better than, than we do sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, so she, uh, said it was time to go back to the fleet. So where'd you go from there? So, uh, 
coming off recruiting duty, I wanted to get back out onto the West Coast. And I wanted to get back out to 465, the War Horses. Um, that's the, uh, in my opinion, you know, one of the better uh, 53 squadrons. So I was fortunate enough coming off of an SDA. The monitor was giving me what I was asking for and rolled back out there. And um, by this time, I was a gunny. So I was looking at one of two jobs, either being the flight line chief or being the QA chief. And then uh, I also had the opportunity when I got out there to uh, become the dead NCIC um, for the new debt that was coming up. So that was the oh. one that um, I asked for and I was able to uh, slide into that. So I was the QA chief out in Fort 65 for a couple months until we chopped over to the evil eyes of uh, HMM-163. And I uh, became the uh, QA chief for the ACE. And I was also the dead NCIC, which was um, in 2001. Uh, and this was uh, the the debt that we were at on uh, for 9/11. Oh, okay, all right. And uh, when that happened, so you so you were there during 9/11. What what did you guys do uh, as far as uh, did you stand up? Did you go anywhere? Anything like that? So we were actually uh, in Darwin, Australia. And, you know, we a couple friends of mine. Uh, we talk about this pretty regularly. The uh, the Mew itself uh, when we took off, and uh, I want to say it was August, uh, July or August. In 2001, when we uh, set sail, that uh, we were going to Darwin, doing an exercise over there. In Darwin, if you haven't been there, there's not a, it's not a big nightlife kind of town. There's a lot of great training areas, and there's like a small section of where like the restaurants and, and some of the clubs and stuff are. Well, uh, the night of 9/11, we, uh, me and a friend of mine, another gunny, were out at uh, a restaurant called the Hog's Breath, and. Uh, Sitting there having a few beers, uh, having a prime rib uh, meal, and a couple shore patrol um, petty officers, you know, came into the to the club, uh, the restaurant, and they're like, you know, all the military get back to the ship. Well, you know, they weren't chiefs, so you know, me and the other gunny were like, yeah, the heck with them, they're not listening. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, so we're finishing. Uh, I think we're getting ready to order another beer, and then literally like two minutes later, um, two navy captains um, came in uh, behind those shore patrol kids. And uh, told us all to get back to the ship. So now we're like, okay, something really must be up. Um, so we all loaded uh, up into the vehicles, headed back to the port. Um, and once we got back on the ship is where we were watching on the closed circuit TV, um, the planes, um, a recap of the planes hitting the uh, Twin Towers. And uh, so it was definitely not knowing what the heck was going on. Here we were in Australia. All we knew is that the ship was getting ready to get underway that night. We were pulling out because we didn't know what the threat was. Um, so we went, um, pulled out offshore, uh, but we still had a follow-on mission of going to East Timor right after um, our, our time in Darwin was going to be up. So we went to East Timor, spent some time up there um, while they were taking care of their elections, and you know we were providing humanitarian assistance. And then uh, once that part was over, then we just beat feet um, as fast as we could, as fast as the ARG could go up to the uh, off the coast of Pakistan. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, at this point, you're off the coast of Pakistan. And uh, so you've been on ship at this point or underway, whatever, for how long? Uh, from uh, this time, it's probably two months because I think we got uh, off the coast uh, in October, first week or so of October. And then there was a bunch of uh, uh, bases and uh, places they were trying to set up inside Pakistan for us. Right. Um Jalalabad and uh, Jakabad or Jalalabad, I keep mixing them up, was one of the places 
um, that we would go to inside Pakistan. And then uh, flash forward um, a month or so later is when uh, we had a uh, our first uh, real uh, mission is going up and retrieved a crashed Black Hawk that uh, was uh, going up into Afghanistan doing uh, whatever mission that they had. But when they came back to a repositioning area, uh, I guess one of the uh, Black Hawks browned out and the uh, pilot lost control and it crashed and it ended up uh, killing a, a soldier. So oh, wow. it was our job as uh, the 53 crew for doing the, uh, being able to do the trap uh, mission, the tactical recovery of aircraft and personnel, being able to go up with a section of 53s up into this place um, called Dalbandon um, to go and retrieve uh, the Black Hawk. So it was like that follow on day. And then, uh, we went in, uh, had a team of Army Rangers and then a whole bunch of engineers to be able to sling uh, this, fit, uh, this Black Hawk up underneath our 53. Grabbed it, um, took it back down probably another 50, 80 miles to a place called Panjur at an airfield where we we're waiting for a second section of 53s to come and uh, swap out, bring us some gas. And then they were going to take the, uh, the crashed Black Hawk out onto the Kitty Hawk. Well, while we were... Uh, waiting at this airfield in uh, Panjir. Um, pilots were up in the uh, tower talking with uh, air traffic controllers and all that. And we were just down on the field, just uh, talking with the Army Rangers, showing the slings and all that stuff. We had the Black Hawk parked off to the side. And then uh, it was the first time I ever got shot at. Uh, we started taking incoming fire from multiple positions around the airfield. Didn't know what the heck was going on. Um, but then once we realized what it was, um, then it was, uh, you know, fights on. So it was our, uh, our one and only mission is to try to make sure that we're suppressing the fight. The pilots were, uh, coming out of the tower to get into the air, um, into the aircraft to get it started up. And this is kind of a funny story for me where as a 53 echo guy, when you, uh, turn the aircraft up, uh, you start it up or you shut it down when you, when you're shutting it down, you take your helmet off and you put it on the probe and that's usually where you put it. If you know, it's not going to be very long. Well, you know, once uh, the shooting started and I was in the back of the plane getting on the left gun, um, when the pilots got on board, there was no way I was going back out to get my, hel- my helmet. Um, right. So uh, I ended up flying um, from there down to Pozni, um in Pakistan along the coast um, without a helmet. Um, so it was kind of one of those things I had to do a missing gear statement. And uh, <laughs> it was like in my head throughout this whole endeavor, um, one I thought I was in trouble um, because we were shooting um, because, again, the war really didn't start, you know, conventionally um, until we jumped into Rhino and took over Rhino in November. Right. It was still like a month before. Um, and then here we are in this um, this gun battle um, in Pakistan in October. So it was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm expecting when we get back to the ship that we're going to get in trouble. Um, you know, and all this stuff. And that wasn't the case. We just make it up in our head. But it was just in my head making that transition. And that was really my transition from peacetime military um, into a wartime footing. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so for, we do have some listeners that aren't necessarily military. So uh, when you're talking about you're picking up the helicopter and moving it. So your aircraft uh, is uh big enough and capable enough to literally pick up another helicopter and fly it somewhere. Correct. Yeah. So uh, what we were able to do is um, you can have uh, you can either lift it either a single point sling or a dual point sling. 
Uh, we ended up rigging it for a dual point, which uh, it, it holds a lot easier when you're going long distances. Um, so uh, while we're doing, uh, you could rig it up to go um, as really as far as you want. We've actually, um, you could do external loads and actually in, uh, refuel in flight at the same time. So you could, you know, technically go indefinitely. Um, right. With an external load under the airplane. Wow. So you get back, excuse me, you get back down, uh, and then get, at that point, what happens? We get back on the ship. The new commander, uh, Colonel Walthauser, ended up retiring as General Walthauser. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he came in, he was briefing us out and, you know, explaining everything. And once we realized, we, you know, we weren't in trouble and that we did good, um, then it was, okay, well, we, you know, we still left a helicopter up there. Um, so what uh, they ended up uh, doing the mission planning, and it was going to be, I want to say three or four nights later, we went back up and this was like with a reinforced force um, with Cobras um, as uh, air support and all that. And then a lo- much larger uh, QDF, QRF force inside in case there was a problem um, that, that when we got back up there, there wasn't any problem. Um, we were able to go in, hook the aircraft, uh, the Black Hawk, had to check it first to make sure that they didn't put any explosives or anything on it. So EOD went in there, cleared it. Made sure it was good to go. We reslung it, and then we brought it back out um, to the Kitty Hawk. Now, when you uh, where you were at and left the Black Hawk there, was that a firm like a base, or was that just kind of a uh, rally point? It was the Pakistani Air Force, uh, Pakistani or it was a Air Pakistani Force. airport, um, and then uh, so it was a it was a, an established airfield, um, mm-hmm. and it was uh, but it was in an area that they call Baluchistan, or that whole area in most of that uh, region. Um, it's all tribal run um, right. because you're, you know, you're so far away from your central government. And, uh, that area was more, uh, pro Taliban. So we mm. just assumed that it was, you know, pro Taliban forces at the time were, uh, taking an opportunity to, um, take out American helicopters. Right. Absolutely. Uh, targets of opportunity at that point. Yep. So, uh, okay. So at this point now you got, you got the Blackhawk out now, how many, like, did you have more missions in Afghanistan, anything of that nature? So, yeah, so that was just the initial getting it back out. And then in, uh, when we actually went in um, around Thanksgiving uh, of 2001 into a place called, we called it Rhino, mm-hmm. which was just south of Kandahar. So it was a, a an old compound that we ended up um, taking over uh, for like our forward operation base, uh, Task Force 58, what it was. And then from there, um, we got joined with uh, the other Mew. I want to say it was a 2-6 Mew okay. that uh, came uh, right there in Rhino. And then uh, we went in, started taking um, positions up in uh, Kandahar. And then at, shortly after, I want to say the middle to the end of December, towards the end of December, yeah, because Jan- January 6th we were back on the boat, um, that we kind of did a transfer of authority. Uh, we went back um and then uh, once they had we had control over Kandahar, um, then they were just building their footprint. Right. And then we rolled back to the ship and then um, rolled back home. Okay. And then, so when did you actually make it back to the States? So we got home in, uh, I want to say it was the middle to the end of February. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was great because, you know, after that, we ended up going back down to Australia. And, uh, you know, of course, by then, you know, the the whole footprint into Afghanistan. We were the first conventional forces, you know, coming back home. Um, 
So, you know, you kind of come back to, uh, I'd say one of the best reunions and welcome I've ever gotten off of all my deployments. Um, you're really just coming back and people just are excited to talk to you and want to hear what was going on. So right. we got back and then, uh, that year, uh, they've changed it that following year, but that year was the last year in 2002 that, um, the E8 board let out in the spring. Um, so I ended up getting selected for first art, um, shortly after I got back home. I want to say, uh, it was in a month, month, month and a half. I was on, um, post deployment leave. Okay. And, uh, when I got called by my sergeant major to tell me to come in and I didn't know what it was. And, uh, he called me up into his office, let me know I got selected for first art. And uh, I was pretty excited, but, you know, then not knowing what the next step was going to be. So, uh, back then he was telling me I had to go, go home. They had like a, uh, an Excel spreadsheet out on the web. Um, wasn't updated very often, but those were all the, the builds that were available for you. So you go through on this Excel spreadsheet, see what, um, uh, interests you. And then those were going to be on my, my wish list, the five, um, places that I picked. Right. My wife and I really kind of, um, you know, looked at each and every one of the ones that were open and available. And, uh, it was funny because none of the ones that I picked said second battalion, first Marines, Camp Pendleton, but that's where <laughs> I ended up going. I think, uh, it, it could have possibly just in your mind, you thought that at some point and, uh, somehow the monitors, uh, up there knew that's what you wanted. So I think I that's how that works out. Written in the stars, but it was, it was, it was comical, you know, and I laugh, look back on it now and laugh and, you know, we literally, my wife and I, for probably two hours, went through, and it was probably 60 billets that were on this Excel spreadsheet, looking at each one and location and all that stuff, and we, all this planning, and I turned it into my sergeant major the next day, and um, then I found out, like, that following Friday that I was going up the street to Pendleton, which, <laughs> you know, hindsight, the best vision, I'm so glad I did, because, you know, that opened my eyes up to you know, the part of the Marine Corps that I didn't get a chance to see right. in aviation. And uh, uh, little did I know that, you know, 13 months after that, I was back on a boat on my way over to uh, uh, Kuwait, getting ready to do the initial invasion into Iraq. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, uh, I will say there is a huge difference between the air wing and then the infantry side. Right. And, and so you were in the air wing the whole time. How was that transition going into the uh, infantry side? But it, it's literally like uh, a fish out of water. I was one of those guys where, um, you know, I understood, I thought I understood the Marine Corps, um, or at least the part that I was very familiar with, the recruiting side, the aviation uh -huh. side. Um, interacted with a lot of guys from different MOSs, but never, never truly lived um, in, in a uh, in a combatant role. Um, so right. when I got up to two one up in Camp Horno, um, literally went over to the SIF. Um, they gave me this whole box, which was, had all my, uh, my Molly gear, um, right. in a video, a VHS cassette, um, <laughs> that shows you how to put this stuff together. So I'm in my office, um, <laughs> looking at all this stuff. I'm like, what, what the hell am I going to do? I, I'm in the back of my head, all I'm thinking like, is I'm going to come looking like Lieutenant Ring from Heartbreak Ridge, you know, I'm going to come walking out with something's going to be backwards or upside down or whatever, right. and, you know, the movie's just going to eat me up and, uh. Fortunately, my company gunny at the time, a um, guy named John Pascanca, ended up retiring as a star major. Um, he took some pity on me, um, came in and uh, showed me how to put this stuff together so I didn't look like a complete buffoon. <laughs> was, uh, I completely understand that. I, 
I know the first time that I had to put some stuff together, I, I walked out and I was like, hey, uh, I need a motivated Lance Corporal to come help me. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, if you don't grow up in that world, like, it was all foreign to me. And, like, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm smart enough. I can put this together. And I'm putting stuff together. And John's looking at me and he's like, first time, you don't want to do that. All right, no, uh, <laughs> I don't recommend, like, he's being so nice. And I'm like, dude, just, just help me. <laughs> and uh, he's like, no, you don't want to do that. And then so from, you know, we became great friends. And uh, but it was definitely one of those where um, I truly I truly didn't know what I was doing. Um, and then right. the funny, funnier part of that. Um, so we the battalion was between its cycles and we knew we were getting ready to deploy. Um, we didn't know we were going to actually invade uh, Iraq, but we knew we were going to deploy. So we we're doing all the workups, doing all the McCree work. Um, right. Well, we ended up getting four new uh, platoon commanders. So okay. they all just came out of IOC. And it's wow. it funny because they showed up. I want to say it was three days after I showed up. And uh, so <laughs> um, they come into my office and they're like, first, do you have a minute? And I'm like, oh, sure, gentlemen, come on in. And they came in and they closed the door and they're like, hey, um, you know, we're here. And, you know, you're, they said uh, an IOC, as soon as you get to your unit, go in and talk to your first sergeant and he's going to get you squared away. And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, we're screwed. <laughs> he know what the hell I was supposed to be doing. But I tell you, it was just just a phenomenal, phenomenal relationship with the staff and CEOs and officers. Um, and just uh, we, we made it happen. Um, but it was initially I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm. I definitely made a bad decision. <laughs> well, I, I get it. I got to say, I, I give uh, all the props to all the first sergeants, sergeant majors out there, especially have to deal with uh, uh, MOSs, you know, like mine, like the band, right? Uh, we're unique in what we do uh, and you have to deal with that. Uh, so, you know, being able to put up with that and understanding the bigger picture and stuff like that, uh, kudos to you guys. Uh it was much easier for me, I think, transitioning to master sergeant because it was in my MOS. I know it. Uh, whereas you, you guys, you're coming from all kinds of different MOSs into the into that uh, first sergeant field, and that's a that's a tough go. Oh yeah, and that's you know you're going to sink or swim. Um, in the right. beginning, I didn't know if I was going to be able to swim. I was I was doing a lot more sinking than swimming. Um, but then, uh, you know, just really building relationships with the uh, with the staff NCOs and the officers. My company commander and I got along really well. Um, and then the other first sergeants, you know, I was definitely the uh, the fish out of water because um, three of the uh, – there was five first sergeants in the battalion. Um, three of them were all combat arms, um, right. 0369s before they picked up the diamond. Um, so it was just me and another guy that uh, weren't grunts by trade, uh, but we all seemed to take care of each other uh, pretty well. And, you know, short, shortly after that, you know, we got back on the boat in January. So it was eight months. I got there in April, April or May of 02. We were on the boat January 6th, um, heading back over to Kuwait um, to, uh, you know, figure out because the, the clock was ticking for, you know, all the things that uh, President Bush was saying to Saddam Hussein. And, uh, you know, we just knew it was a matter of time. Right. Absolutely. So, so uh, they do with a, and I, this is kind of something I look back on now and smile. You know, typically when you're dealing as a first sergeant, it's all the good order and discipline and holding people accountable. And it was some real, you know, regular junior marine and some senior marine buffoonery. And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to go to war with you know they're a bunch of a bunch of crazy people. But I'll tell you, right. tactically, um, phenomenal when it comes to mount training um, and mount skill. 
uh, and my entire company. They're just phenomenal, lethal warriors, you know, and I would just be in awe all the time of watching, you know, how they were able to do what they did so professionally. And I thought I was really doing them a disservice. And I'm telling my company commander, I'm like, you know, I feel like I'm not able to help you because I don't know the tactics like this. And right. he told me, he's like, first sorry, he's like, you know, I don't need you to f- teach me how to fight my company. Like right. he learned all that. Um, mm-hmm. I just need you to do all the rest of the stuff. And, you know, once we figured that out, um, you know, then it really just started clicking. Right. Absolutely. And I, I, I like that, uh, how we, how the Marine Corps does it with the first sergeant, sergeant major route. And, uh, you know, you're there for that administrative, uh, side of the house for, especially uh, in garrison. Right. Uh, but also while you're deployed, because you're in charge of all the personnel. Correct. Yeah, you're you're considered what they call the MAKO, the marshalling and area control officer. So, you know, you're you're counting heads, making sure people are where they're supposed to be, mm-hmm. um, making sure the logistics through your company gunny. You know, everybody's got their own special role to make it all work in that dynamic uh, environment. And uh, once you're in it and you see it happening, you kind of step back and you're just like, wow, th- this is why we win wars. Um, yeah. I agree with that. All right, so you go over uh, on ship over to Kuwait, correct? Yep. Yeah, so we get set up in one of the LSAs. Um, I want to say we were uh, ten miles, ten miles or so from the five uh, uh, k berm, mm-hmm. and uh, it might have been more than that. But we were in Amtrak's. Um, I just remember that um, setting up in the LSA, just getting things ready, and then that's where I ended up meeting. Um, my final drill instructor, I, I know I didn't uh, mention before, I, I had a chance to meet all of my drill instructors um, throughout my career. The first one I met um, when I was a young corporal over in Okinawa, I re- okay. met one of my sergeants, Sergeant Marsh, as a staff sergeant. Um, I met my senior at the staff academy. Um, he was a guest speaker. And uh, nice. when I was over in uh, Kuwait, we were over to LSA Matilda, and uh, there was a master gunny, Robinson, over there. And it was like... I didn't know this guy because, again, I only saw him when I was a kid, and uh, but his voice was the same. So I'm sitting <laughs> over there with um, a couple of my Amtrackers, and uh, we're over there getting some supplies. And there was this guy, um, Master Gunny Robinson, next to one of the uh, chicken coops. We had chicken coops set up over there, and they were our early warning uh, chemical attack oh, okay, um, yeah. uh, mechanism. So, you know, if the chickens died, then put your mask on kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, but we're over there by these... Uh, this chicken coop and he's trying to take some pictures of it. And I heard the voice and I looked up at him. I'm like, Holy cow. And, uh, so he was looking for somebody to take a picture. So I grabbed the camera. And I was like, I'll take care of it. Master guns. And, uh, I was like, Hey, were you a, a drill instructor in, uh, Paris Island in 86? He's like, yes, I was. I was like, I was one of your recruits. And, uh, so he's like, well, you must have been doing really good for yourself. You know, I was one of those very fortunate, you know, I was, I was wearing first sergeant in 15 years. Um, wow. so I was definitely, uh, I was in the right place at the right time and the right mentorship um, in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. And it was it was kind of cool to be able to see him. Um, so I was able to see all three before I retired. But anyway, so while we're in Kuwait getting the build up, and then uh, you know on March second uh, we got the green light and we were crossing the berm and uh, just really just doing our part um, in the south, working our way through uh, Umkasar um, and. Uh, uh, what's the other place? Uh, yeah, Umkasar and uh, Alfar Peninsula. Okay. 
So obviously this is a huge difference from, okay, I'm in helicopters, I'm flying around type of thing with air wing. Now you're on the infantry side, you're moving in and uh, closing with and destroying the enemy, right? Correct. So what, like when you're looking at that, what is the iconic things that you see is the difference? Like how is it, how did the infantry think versus how does the air winger think? Uh, you know, I just think in, in pure logistics. Well, you know, when I would go to CACs as a, you know, with the helicopter squadron, I would bring a cooler, my grill, you know, <laughs> a sleeping bag and all that stuff. Because right. I had a big helicopter that I could store all that stuff. Mm-hmm. wasn't the case when I did the McCree CACs, you know, with the company, you, know, you bring what you can carry. Now, right. I think I was able to bring a, a folding chair and something else that I was able to throw up on the Amtrak. But, but that's it. So, you know, you definitely went a lot lighter. Um, with your items that you bring with you. Um, mm-hmm. And then as far as the perspective, I think just, you know, you, when you see the world from the air, you know, you're just looking at angles different. You're looking at targets different. You right. know, when you're on the ground, you know, the things that don't bother you or don't seem to be significant, you know, when you're in the air at three, four or 500 feet, um, then become uh, just a regular dirt hole um, in the side <laughs> of a mound. You know, that could very well be, you know, something you need to be concerned about. So just yeah, definitely absolutely. change your perspective. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I remember flying uh, in in Iraq. We were going uh, from Blue Diamond. Uh, I can't remember where we were flying to, but we had a ceremony we had to go to support. So they put us in there. And I remember flying over Fallujah and uh, and the uh, the guy, the gunner, he's like, Hey, do you want to look out? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever. So I start looking out and I see flash of lights and I'm like, what is that? And he's like, you know, of course we're not able to really talk back and forth, but he motioned of, Hey, it's somebody shooting at us. And I was like, yep, that's it. I'm going to sit down. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. the other thing too is, you know, when you're up in a helicopter, you know, you're not realizing you feel like you're safe, but you know, the, the skin on that airplane is just aluminum. Um, right. Literally a tin can. There's there's protection um, in very strategic places. But um, it, for the most part, it, there's not much other than what you're wearing. Um, and then yeah. you would sit on your chicken plate um, just in case somebody was shooting up from the ground because you definitely didn't want to, you know, get shot in the butt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, you know, when you're on the ground, it's, you know, you're living in your sappies. Yeah, um, absolutely. You, you never know where the uh, threat's going to be. I always I was remembered. Uh, so I always wore the uh, uh, the nut protector. Um, I, I, I right. still I still have it because like I always thought like everybody's got a picture in their head. You know, the first time you ever get in a firefight, you know what's going to happen. I was always afraid that I was going to you know get shot in my in my privates. Um, right. But it, it was just always my thing. Um, never did. I, mean, I was fortunate. I never got wounded. But uh, that was always the thing. So I always carried. I always wore that uh, uh, nut protector. <laughs> I think that's pretty smart, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, as we're sitting here having these conversations, I'm just reminiscing. It's those kinds of things, you know, that stuck out. The relationships, um, just the the physical exertion that all the Marines were, you know, putting out to just lay waste um, strategically to the enemy. Right. Um, but uh, it's just amazing how they uh, how they did what they needed to do. I remember one uh, Corporal Perez. Um, he was a 203 gunner and this guy was pretty solid. Um, but he, you know, he had the 203 vest on with all those shells. You know, this, it, you look at it and this thing looks like it's weighing another 200 pounds. I'm sure it wasn't that much, but right. you know, here he is and on top of all of his other gear. Um, <laughs> and he's like, holy cow, like literally there's, 
there's no way I could have done it. Yeah, the, I'm telling you, some of those guys are amazing. Uh, you look at the guys that have to carry uh, all, all of the mortars and all that type mm -hmm. of stuff. I, I mean, that they're definitely in shape. That's for sure. And they have to be. They have to be in shape. They really do. And so that was kind of the thing after my tour um, with 2-1. It you know, kind of changed my mindset, not so much from you know, PFT ready, but functional fitness ready. Absolutely. Um, it's really about the, the endurance in the long haul. So that really kind of opened my eyes. So, bef you know, before the requirement really was just passing a PFT and I was a good first class PFT -er, um, Right. But, you know, that just gets you in the door. It's all that other conditioning um, that I was woefully lacking in the beginning. Um, Absolutely. You know, it took me a while to, to build back up. Well, around that time, if I'm not mistaken, that's when they were coming out with the combat fitness test. Is that correct? Uh, yep. It was uh, yeah. shortly uh, shortly after that. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But that, and that's good. I, you know, I think that was a good transition that the Marine Corps did, uh, and and they're still keeping it up today. They've adjusted it several times, just like they always do. Uh, of course, the PFT has basically been the same, uh, minus the pull-ups. Uh, now the females are doing that, but other yeah, than that, it's pretty much been the same. Different. You know, it started out with sit-ups, mm -hmm. um, and then it, you know to the crunches. You know, they would always change the a little, excuse me, a little bit of the modification of the crunches, but for the most part, it was just the, you know, the trio sit-ups, pull-ups, and the run. Um, right. And then the CFT definitely was opening up a lot of a lot of people to functional fitness. And then all the hit centers um, started coming out, you right. know. And then you get the uh, TRX belts, you know, because we were really <laughs> started having, you know, that um, deployed footing. You know, you still had to maintain physical fitness. So being able to, you know, work out and you know, we call it like prison gym conditions yeah. out of the fob or a PB. Um, you did what you had to do. Um, sandbags as your as your curling bars and you know whatever you could to uh, get yourself staying fit. Absolutely, and that's that's the way it should be, in my opinion. But uh, and that's good. Um, okay, so um, so you you've deployed into Iraq, right? You've you've gone in uh, with the infantry. And now what happens? Are you, are you, uh, when did you pull out of there? So we came out of there in June, um, and, uh, got back on the ship, came back home. And then from there, uh, I went down to, uh, Pensacola, uh, Florida. Well, okay. I was back with the battalion. Uh, they were getting ready to go deploy again, oh, wow. uh, back over to do OIF2. Mm -hmm. And, uh, because I was already deployed and I was in Afghanistan the year before, you know, it was, time to do some rotations and you know give other people an opportunity right so i ended up uh leaving uh two one went down to pensacola to aviation training group um down there which was a great tour ended up spending uh three three and a half years um working with the students in the aviation schoolhouses i was telling you a little bit um before okay. we started the podcast you know we had the aircraft maintenance uh mechanics the airframers um the uh, air crew school was fell under uh, my squadron, AMS-1. Right. Uh, the EAF, the Expeditionary Airfield guys that go out there and, you know, can put an airfield out in the middle of a, a dirt path. Yeah. Um, and then the aviation ordnance uh, personnel were there and then the ground support equipment. So all total, when we were at our peak, uh, we'd have 16, 1,700 students um, on deck with about 135, 140 instructors. And uh, 
living down in Pensacola. We got there three months later, Hurricane Ivan uh, came <laughs> in and destroyed the base. Um, so right. we evacuated all the students up to Albany, Georgia, lived uh-huh. in uh, warehouses for a couple weeks, which was uh, pretty chaotic. Not so much from a combat standpoint, but, you know, now you got young young guys and girls living together in a warehouse. And, you know, yeah. I felt like I was more of a guidance counselor and a school principal, <laughs> you know, trying to keep uh, keep the peace. Um <laughs> But it was uh, really a great opportunity to see the training side through TCOM, you know, and what it really takes to, uh, you know, I saw the entry level, you know, recruiting them, bring them in. Um, I understood the recruiting part or while they were down in the depot, but then right. that follow on school piece uh, really opened my eyes to what it really takes to get somebody from recruit training, you know, out to the fleet. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is amazing. All those instructors that uh, for all the MOSs as they're, as they're going through, phenomenal job being able to uh, get those Marines to understand what it is they need to know in order to get out to the fleet. They do fantastic at all those things. And, it, you know, in my opinion, I think that that uh, that level of expertise when you're talking about the MOS specific stuff should be on par with, you know, those, the drill instructor, recruiter, and, you know, I wish that they would bump that up a little bit, but it is what it is. Um, but in my opinion, they do a fantastic job. No, I agree. <clears throat> I couldn't have said it any better to myself. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So you spent how long down there at Pensacola? Pensacola was, uh, 04 to 07. So three years. Okay. Um, and then, uh, from there, um, I was, uh, fortunate enough to get selected to SAR major. And then, uh, what it was is um, we had opportunities to go where we wanted. And uh, the West Coast was calling me again. My uh, oldest son uh, was a Marine at this time uh, with a CLB-5. Okay. Um, he was up in Pendleton. I didn't want to be on the same base, but I wanted to kind of be in the same geographical location. Right. So uh, I ended up uh, taking a, a position with an F-18 squadron, VMFA-232, the Red Devils, yep. and uh, uh, joined them in December of uh 2007 and uh we actually deployed again uh in january so i was with them for uh less than two months before we were getting back underway uh, for a western uh westpac deployment on an okay. aircraft carrier this time which you know you hear the stories of you know the aircraft carriers are so big you can get lost i literally got lost um, <laughs> on a carrier i'm walking around and you know i've been on helicopter carriers you know four or five of them and i thought i was pretty familiar but right. it's night and day between the two um, I'm literally walking around and I ended up having some engineer guy. He's like, uh, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm lost. Hey, you gotta, you gotta get your humble pride out and, uh, let him know you're lost. And he's able to get me back up to civilization. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. That's it, like to put in perspective how big those ships are is amazing. Uh, as I'm driving through Virginia Beach every now and again, they'll be, you know, parked in and doing maintenance or different things. And I look at that ship, I'm like, oh my God, it's like a city all to itself. It truly is amazing. It truly, I think there's what, 5,000 or 5,500, um, personnel assigned to, uh, then I was on the Nimitz, um, which is okay. one of the older carriers. And, uh, it was just a, just a ginormous, but we had a great Western deployment, uh, Westpac deployment. Um, it was like the first uh, non-combat deployment for me for a couple times, you know, because the two preceding deployments were Afghanistan and Iraq. Right. So we were able to go back to, you know, just cruising the, the Western Pacific, still doing that show of force, doing a lot of Comrade stuff. Um, but they weren't uh, um, as hazardous as the other deployments. 
Right. Now, as a sergeant major, what was your role uh, as you deployed with them on the ship? So really still doing um, the good order and discipline, please. Um, right. Making sure that um, the Marines uh, stayed focused on the task at hand um, and just lending support um, to the maintenance side. Well, where I felt that I was a great asset to the organization was because I had such a strong aviation background, even though I was a helicopter guy and, and this, these are F-18s. Um, you still understand aviation is aviation. Um, right. So being able to um, just understand what they're doing, um, show support when I can, help them clean the planes, do whatever, just show, you know, keeping the morale up and keeping them focused on the task at hand. Uh, that was kind of my role. Very cool. And uh, I'm sure that was a, 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 like a blessing in disguise for you, like go, get, being able to get back to your roots, right? Get back to the air side. It really was. And it was kind of one of those things where I, you know, I got into the not too many people, um, you know, could step in. And I would never say that I was a maintenance chief, but because I was a maintenance controller and understood all the aviation elements, you know, I was able to better connect with the maintenance chief in the squadron um, where, you know, they could say a, a maintenance chief could do the sergeant major's role. But very rarely can you find the sergeant major doing that um, <laughs> the master gunny's role. Um and I that's couldn't do it as true. well as he did, but at least I understood what he was doing a little bit yeah, better. That's very true. I, I will say that the dynamic between a, uh, like, say, a Master Gunny and a Sergeant Major is very unique. Uh, and it, it, like the Army, they don't they do not do that. It's They have Sergeant Majors that uh, once they hit, was it E9, uh, First Sergeant or Master Sergeant, they can go back and forth uh, between yeah. the two, whereas the Marine Corps does not do that at all. And I think it's for the better, in my opinion. Uh, but the but that thing between the master gunny and that sergeant major is very unique. It, it's critical, and it, you know you can tell when a unit is functioning well. It appears like it's a great relationship. When the unit's not, you know, there's usually some either misunderstanding or bad blood between the two, um, and it definitely will wreak havoc on an organization. That's oh yeah. You know, I always do the best. Uh, and I've felt like I've had great relationships with all the master gunnies that I've worked with because realizing that, you know, master gunnies don't work for sergeant majors and sergeant majors don't work for master gunnies. But we all work collectively. Um, <laughs> That's right. To make sure the organization runs. Absolutely. And I, I wish everybody in the Marine Corps had that outlook because it would make things much easier. I can tell you that. Oh, yeah. And, and I know they don't because I've had those conversations, too. And it's it's unfortunate. Um, but uh, it, it, it is what it is. <laughs> life goes on right it does all right so do that Westpac, and um after that Westpac, then i was able to uh have an opportunity to go back up into an aviation helicopter squadron so okay. i went up the street up into camp pendleton to hmla 267 the stingers okay. so after um that was from 09 to 11 and then uh, we were able to take the whole squadron primarily that squadron was like the new um, helicopter assets. So we would just send out debts, but the whole squadron wouldn't go together anywhere. Um, well, we were fortunate that the CEO that we had at the time was able to, uh, uh get us in the fight, um, back into Afghanistan. So we took, um, a full 1.0, full HMLA, Hueys and Cobras, um, over to Afghanistan as a third maw asset over with Sekamaw over in 2011, which wow. was a phenomenal experience. You know, not just for me being back in, a helicopter um, squadron, but being able to function as a full squadron and not just individual debts really got everybody rallying around the flag um, and showing that unit uh, cohesion. Right. Absolutely. 
So, uh, okay, so you're in Afghanistan, and uh, what are some things that you remember from that deployment? So that was the one, um, you know, in hindsight, it's the best vision we have. Where we were at in the line, we were on the backside of uh, what they called uh, Bastion. So you had mm -hmm. Leatherneck um, and then Bastion, which was the airfield. So our spot, we were the last spot, um, and then they were just building the revetments for the um, Harriers. Okay. And uh, so... Uh, just being in that part of um, the space, you know, there's nothing out there that, you know, they had the tower guards and the perimeter fence, but, you know, you're out um, kind of alone and unafraid. So I was really focused on my interior guard um, mm -hmm. and making sure that we were um, as safe as we could. Cause you know, the, after my time on the, in the ground, um, you knew just how lethal a small force could be. Um, I just remember that was something that always stuck out to me. And then, Flash forward um, in uh, the summer of 12 was when uh, the uh, Afghanis uh, were able to uh, get into Camp Bastion and uh, basically destroyed that uh, Harrier squadron and uh, right. killed the CEO and a couple other um, members of that squadron, which was uh, really devastating to uh, Marine Aviation as a whole. So that was right, just something yeah. that stood out to me that we were in, you're out there in no man's land. Um, so it was uh, kind of telling that when uh, flash forward a little bit, I think it was January of 13, when I got um, slated to go to the East Coast, I went um, to headquarters battalion. That's where you and I served together. That's um, right. I got over there in uh, April of 12. So we did the uh, deployment to Afghanistan with the Huey Cobra Squadron and 11. Came home um, February. I came to the East Coast February or March, joined headquarters battalion. Um, I got a chance to uh, spend some time with you and Matt Boatwright. Um, with the band. <laughs> That's right. Definitely my, my heroes. And uh, <laughs> then I was also penciled in to become the MHG forward sergeant major um, to go back over and uh, to handle the uh, that role over in uh, Leatherneck and Bastion. So I was um, okay. initially a little um, reluctant because I wasn't even at a dwell, what we called it, um, from my uh, deployment in 11. But the opportunity presented itself that Sergeant Major Zikafus um, pre presented to me and then uh, Sergeant Major Van Ostrom um, couldn't pass it up. So uh, they gave me the opportunity to take the MHG forward. So me and uh, Colonel Jim Stopa and mm -hmm. followed on by Colonel Bo Higgins. Um, that was one of the things where Jim Stopa, uh, just a, he was a tanker by trade, uh, but understood the lay of the land. Um, right. I want to say through his uh, perseverance and stick-to-itiveness, uh, we repositioned a uh, little over 2 million yards of dirt and basically leveled out a lot of the uh, fields of fire over in the backside of Bastion um, so that it wasn't um, an enemy's strength, uh, you know, put the uh, level the playing field. So we were able to uh, defend our positions. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it was a, that was a great, um, a great deployment in 13. So for the whole year, you know, open my eyes up to the other side from an installation standpoint, but, uh, you know, make sure that we're providing real-time security between Baldac, the mm -hmm. PB that we had, um, and, uh, you know, the other PBs and FOBs that the MHG um, had administrative um, support roles over. And uh, so I'd get out to all the PBs and the FOBs and uh, just when being you, able to now, see. When you, you say know, PBs, what are you saying? Patrol what? bases. Patrol so smaller bases. Okay. FOB, yeah. um, so smaller locations. Um, okay. They would uh, take a, they'd have like a smaller compound in an area and it would be, you know, uh, half of a company um, right. in, in um, 
concert with Afghan, um, and copper A and P, um, mm-hmm. to be able to, uh, provide stability and security in certain areas in, uh, in Helmand. Okay. And then, uh, we did the, uh, you know, the somber part of that job was we did all the ramp ceremonies. So whenever there was a KIA um, for allied forces, um, us or the Brits or our coalition partners, um, I always uh, that my role was to uh, orchestrate those uh, ceremonies, um, which was, you know, the, when I look back on it now is you want to do the best you can for our fallen. And it's probably one of the saddest moments um, that I think about. Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, during that deployment, um, we ended up having 25 ramp ceremonies. So not just, uh, mm. U.S. Marines, um, Army Green Berets, and then our coalition right. partners. Right. Uh, I will tell you from a, from a bandsman's perspective, when you're looking at, uh, those types of things. So our buglers go out and do, uh, you know, funerals on a regular basis. And, and it's something that I try to preach to our musicians at, at, when they're young is how important that really is, you know, and it becomes almost second nature sometimes for those guys. And to bring that importance back to it is is something that I, I believe is very important. Uh, we need to honor those that have fallen and those those that have gone like that. Um, but that is a tough deal. Uh, I, I, I feel sorry for the or not feel sorry, but, and, you know, I uh, sympathize with the ones that have to go out and play taps. It is tough. Uh, I played uh, many of memorial services, and that is a, a very rough go. Because you talk about from a bandsman perspective, it, you have to be on your A game, like you, because you, people are counting on you. Just the pressure, uh, and you know you're going to do well, but you know you just got so many people counting on you to make sure that you're hitting all the notes and doing it the right way. Um, it, it's important. Yeah, I remember uh, looking back when my dad passed away. He was a marine back here in Korea. Uh, by the way, not a great Marine, but he did, he did, he did his job. Uh, he, he got in trouble a couple of times. Um, but, uh, you know, when he passed away, I called my buddy, uh, Rob Marikin and I'm like, Hey, I, I want you to play taps, you know, for my dad. And he was like, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll come out. You know, he played taps before a million times, you know, as he's, he's gone through his career. Uh, at this point, I think he was a staff sergeant, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but he came out uh, to Oklahoma where my dad and I had passed away and he met the family. You know, he hung out with us for several days leading up to the funeral. Uh, and then the funeral happened. And uh, to hear his story is is pretty wild because he he got up there and he's like, oh, my God, like the pressure is so high at this moment in time, you know. So but he did a fantastic job. I was in tears. It was I mean, he did a really, really bang up job for it. And I appreciate that. Well, you know what Jesse Puller always said, you know, take me to the brig and I want to see the real Marines. So you know, if your dad got in trouble, he was definitely a real Marine. He was there. That is for sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if he actually went to the brig, but he got in trouble quite a bit. I those are some good stories I have to tell you sometime. I look forward to that over a bourbon. Absolutely. All right. So uh headquarters battalion. So that's where we served together. And I titled uh, uh, this this podcast, this one and the one before, as Sergeant Major Mafia. Uh, so I, out of your uh, recollection, did you ever refer to as the Sergeant Major Mafia? Did you ever refer to it as that? Oh, uh, all the time, because it really was a mafia. It's gotten, <laughs> I think it's gotten different over the years, but for the longest time, like when I first picked up First Heart, 
um, you know, our MOS was $99.99 um, right. before they changed it to $89.99. So, you know, you would have um, certain 99.99s that thought that they were your career planner. Um, <laughs> it was like every sergeant major had their own role, and it was this person that you had to be nice to or this person to avoid. Um, right. And it really was a mafia. And if you, uh, your reputation truly preceded you in a lot of these places, that if you, uh, didn't do what you needed to do or you weren't a dependable person when you showed up, you know, your name was already mud or, you know, <laughs> they welcomed you with open arms. It was, it was definitely the mafia. And then even when I got at the, the 06 level, you know, cause that's when you, when you see how that the way the hierarchy works or the pecking order, right. you know, the 05 commands usually your first tour, um, mm-hmm. Sergeant majors. Um, and then after you have, um, three to five years time and grade, um, then you're uh, eligible for an 06 command. And then after so much time in an 06 command, then you would, uh, you're eligible to slate for the GO or some of the high visibility, um, right. 06 commands. And, uh, you know, it was definitely, it's definitely the mafia. It's funny when I, cause I heard when I, when you saw that or when I saw it, I'm like, yup. Um, <laughs> I used to think I was a good member in standing at the mafia. Uh, I don't know where my membership is now, but. Um, Oh, you got me cracking up over here. Uh, yeah, I remember, and and I never, ever referred to it as a Sergeant Major Mafia until I got to Lejeune there with you at Headquarters Battalion. And I was amazed. at the, <laughs> There was nothing that happened within the division unless the Sergeant Major Mafia approved it. And it, it was just truly amazing. And I, I think it's a great thing. And, and it's completely different at Lejeune, like second Marine division is completely different. From first Marine division. And uh, it's not the same. I, I don't know what the difference is like, but I, I mean, I probably because second Marine division, everyone's close together. We're all on that one street, right. Or one or two streets, you know, uh, with all the different battalions and stuff, regiments, but uh, and first Marine division is very spread out. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that was my, uh, like introduction to Sergeant Major Mafia. And I was like, oh my God, I got to make sure that I'm in with the Sergeant Major Mafia. That way, if I need something, <laughs> I can go to these guys and they can help me out. Or else they're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, true. <laughs> Very true. Oh man. Yeah, it was, that was definitely some good times. And then that is where you retired from, correct? No, actually, uh, from there, um, when I got back from Afghanistan in, in, uh, 2014, uh-huh. then, uh, I was, uh, had the opportunity to go over and take over, uh, Marine Corps Station New River. That's so I was right. the uh, New River Station Sergeant Major, yep. um, until I retired in 2016. Okay. Man. And what a career you had. I mean, it is amazing the places that you've gone, things that you've done. Uh, I thank you, uh, for one, because you have saved my career. Uh, and I appreciate it. I, there was a point in time where surprise, surprise, I did something stupid and got in trouble. Uh, maybe I didn't do something stupid, but you know, some things came up and you were always there for me. I'd come over and ask you questions and you, you know, you're always there giving me good scoop and stuff like that. And as a good SAR major should. And I appreciate that. Well, and, it, and I'll tell you, as I'm hearing you say it, and it was something I was alluding to at the end of uh, the last podcast, you know, you never really know if you're making a difference. You know when you're effing things up, you know, as a song major, but you <laughs> right. never really know if you're making a difference until it's like conversations like this, you know, or somebody reaches out to you after and say, hey, you know what, um, I appreciate you you helped me through this one thing, you know, and I've, I've, I'm sure I've caused, you know, many more heartaches and tears 
um, than I really wanted to. But, you know, my head and heart was in the right spot, you know, trying to help people um, see the right way. Um, you know, I look at it, my role is shaping behaviors. Um, right. I can either do it and you, you always got to read the room. There's some people that responded like you, Andrew, you're a professional. Never had to raise my voice or scream and yell. Uh, but there are others that, uh, you know, you try the adult approach to it that doesn't work and you just got to put your freaking um, pull your big boy pants on and just start screaming and then people respond. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's just different. And there's also an expectation, you know, so. You know, the one thing that I always look back on, you know, as a sergeant major, you're, you're always on, you're always in command um, mm -hmm. or you're always in the command team, you know, for the commanders, you know, they come in, they get, you know, 24 months or depending on what role, 36 months to figure it out. But for the most part, they were never really in command of anything, especially in the aviation units. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they might have like an 05 or an 04 major if he was on recruiting duty, but, you know, from an aviation side, you're either an OIC in a section, mm -hmm. and then when you become a lieutenant colonel, you become a squadron commander. In the infantry side, you know, you get to become a company commander as a captain, maybe right. go out and uh, get an RS or something as a major. But So you've had opportunities to actually be in command and lead. Mm -hmm. um, but for the sergeant majors and the first sergeants, you're always on. So it's 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 not so much a sprint, it's the marathon. you yeah. got to figure out to get your pace, um, find out what's important to you. Um, still maintain your relevance with your commander because at the end of the day, um, the commander's name is on the, the sign, just like yours. Um, they were selected by headquarters Marine Corps. You were assigned by headquarters Marine Corps, um, and it's a partnership. Um, and if you work well together and realize at the end of the day, the commander gets the final say, mm -hmm. um, there's nothing wrong with it. As long as they're listening to you, um, that you couldn't ask for anything better. Absolutely. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, well, I, I got to tell you, it has been an honor uh, for me to sit here and talk to you and reminisce and hear your story. Uh, I think it's incredibly important to make sure that we're telling these veteran stories. And I, I don't think that they're being told as much as they need to. Uh, although this may be a small platform now, maybe it turns into a huge thing. Who knows? But uh, I appreciate you coming on and and just having the time, taking it out of your day to come in and talk to me and, and let the listeners know kind of what your history was and, and what you went through. And I, for one, thank you for everything that you've done. Uh, I know that I have a lot of personal interest in you specifically just because we served together. Uh, but overall, your, your incredible career, I want to thank you very, very much for all of that. Uh, I, I really do appreciate the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. It's given me a chance to kind of reminisce. You know, I, we laugh at, you know, being the guy that's going to start saying back when I was in or back in the old corps. And, <laughs> you know, for me, you know, I've only retired seven, eight years ago. Um, but it's really, it's the success of the Corps. We're all have vested interest in it. Um, Absolutely. You know, and are there some things that have to change? Absolutely you have to change with the times, but there are some elements of what it is that make us different and unique. Um, that I hope never change. Um, it's it's one of those things that I'll always hold near and dear to my heart, knowing that I not only was able to make it in an organization that's very um, uh, very difficult, very challenging, but also able to be very to be successful to to get to the top of the enlisted chain and being able to retire as a sergeant major. Um, didn't do it on my own, and I look back on it now, and I just hope um, I was able to make a positive difference uh, in the lives of the Marines that I worked with. Well, I can say for, for one Marine that you worked with, uh, you definitely made a positive impact. I truly appreciate it. Are there any uh, 
Anything else that you would like to leave for the listeners before we close this podcast out? Really, as I was kind of wrapping up last time as well, just realize your role um, is much bigger than what you think it is. Um, don't lose sight of tomorrow because of the, the craziness or the mundane tasks that you're faced with today. Um, when you're forward deployed, it seems like that's all the fun and excitement. When you're back home, it's not. But I tell you, what you do here matters just as much as it is when you're forward deployed. You know, you practice like you play. You know, make sure that you're putting your heart and soul into it. Get out there. Stay physically fit. Um, if you have issues, make sure you're speaking up. Talk to your leadership. Find a battle buddy. Find a mentor that you can talk to if you're having a tough time. Um, because there's no shame in asking for help. Um, there is no... Uh, stigma that should be associated with you saying, hey, I need to take a knee or I'm, uh, I need some help figuring this stuff out. I tell people I would have mentors that I'd be able to reach out to just to help me get back to neutral because I'd get lost in my own head or some experience from overseas would creep up when I was least expected. Um, it's, it's, it, I found it's normal. It's natural. Don't be afraid to speak up. Know what you do is special each and every day. And thank you all for doing what you do because um, you're keeping us safe. We did our part. Now it's your time. Absolutely. I, I will tell you, I, I'm extremely thrilled that we got to have this conversation. Uh, but with this, it does conclude this week's uh, podcast. Uh, so we'll be back next week with another special guest uh, for their veteran story and discuss the lost arts. Thanks again to Bill Oldenburg. Uh, I truly appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Andrew. I'll see you at your retirement in a couple of months. Sounds great. Uh, all right. With that, everyone, uh, hopefully you tune in again. Uh, we'll have, like I said before, in one of the earlier podcasts I did, we're trying to do uh, three times a week, do the uh, fireside chats, and then two times a week doing these veteran stories. So hopefully this will keep me occupied during retirement and not drive my crazy or drive my wife too crazy. I almost said that wrong, didn't I? Uh, drive my wife too crazy. But hey, I appreciate you for tuning in and I hope you guys have a great time. Uh, stay motivated and change your socks.